Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. There it is right there. We are giving away a pair of Beat the Box Office tickets to see Sting's upcoming tour. It's called Sting, My Songs with guest Joe Summer. It's at Rogers Arena, September the 29th. We want to send you there. Now, tickets go on sale uh, Friday through Live Nation. But as I said, these are Beat the Box Office tickets. So you have a chance to win a pair this morning if you can sting along with a... I got to say this right. Sting along with with a Sting song. Now you can see why I had a little trouble with that, right? Sting along with a Sting song. That's what we're going to be doing this morning for your chance to win. Uh, Very simple. There's so many great Sting songs out there. We'll keep it very easy for you. Your chance to win is coming up. So just keep listening for that. Now, I like to say you learn something new every day. You've probably heard me say that before. So I can tell you that up until this morning, I did not know that maple syrup is one of the 10 most adulterated foods in the world. It can be labeled incorrectly. It can be tampered with. It can be smuggled, extensively smuggled, actually. Um, Do you remember the story of the great maple syrup heist of about 10 years ago? 3,000 tons of maple syrup were stolen from a warehouse in central Quebec. That maple syrup was worth almost $20 million. I know, it's crazy, right? The fight against maple syrup smuggling continues. And now some producers are even using something called fluorescence fingerprinting to combat this. How does it work? Why is it so important? Well, Maria Corradini joins us now, the co-author of the study that looked into this, an associate professor of food science and the Arel Chair in Food Quality at the University of Guelph. Maria, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Cindy, for having me. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Well, what is fluorescence fingerprinting? What does that mean? Well, basically, uh, many foods, including maple syrup, they have fluorescent compounds that are naturally present on them. So basically, if you put them under UV light, they glow. Uh, but that, uh, that glow is very distinctive for every kind of product. So basically, you can map it creating something that resembles a fingerprint, a sour fingerprint, in order to characterize the product. So, as you, as you well said, you know, you always learn something new. So now you also learn that uh, maple syrup glows. <laughs> I did not know that maple syrup glows under UV light. So you can, you can find out, I guess, then what maple syrup should look like. So then you can check it? Exactly. So it has a very distinctive a com- combination of compounds that actually allow you to see if it is glowing correctly or not. <laughs> right. So is the is the fluorescent kind of fingerprint different depending on the type of grade of maple syrup we're talking about? Yeah, it's slightly different depending on the grade. If um, Also, it depends uh, probably if you are looking into amber or dark syrup. 
and also it depends on the water. So, for example, maple syrups that are coming from Quebec or that are said that are coming from Quebec are slightly different from the ones from Ontario. Okay, so is this something that maple syrup producers would really like to start using? Uh, well, it's not that difficult to implement. So once we have a significant database um, that actually allows us to map all these uh, nuances in terms of terroir, in terms of uh, type, uh, that's something that might be another tool in the arsenal to combat food fraud. Okay, so is that what you're in the process of doing now then, is kind of building that database? Exactly, that's what we are doing. And once you built it, then what happens? Well, now you can implement it uh, at industrial levels if that's uh, CC. Okay, so if I'm a maple syrup producer then, can I kind of tap into that database and, and find out what my maple syrup is supposed to look like? Yeah, mm-hmm. that would be the ultimate a desirable outcome of this. Oh, interesting. So, Maria, why maple syrup? Why study this? Well, we are interested in a variety of products in terms of, in terms of quality. Uh, so, maple syrup, uh, of course, that is a typical Canadian product. Um, from my particular and personal experience, you know, probably you can tell that I'm not Canadian, so that was the first encounter with Canadian products. And you know, adding, can he, adding maple syrup to your diet is always a treat. Um, but as you well said, you know, it's a very expensive commodity. So it's, uh, it's highly um, vulnerable to any kind of tampering. And we are interested in studying food authenticity. So it's not just uh, maple syrup what we have been uh, working on. Uh, I'm, I'm part of a network of uh, researchers that actually are working on different commodities. Oh. So, for example, Dr. Stefan Bayern uh, in McGill is studying honey uh, and oils. Um, Dr. Robert Hanner is studying fish. And actually, he was one of the first ones uh, that spotted a significant amount of uh, fraudulent activities in fish. Okay, so this is so interesting. So this is a way to really make sure that what you're buying is the genuine article, right? Exactly. And it's not just about authenticity. It has also to do with food safety because some of these adulterations actually can have safety implications. Okay, so how soon will this be able to be used by producers? Well, it depends how fast we work it up. Uh, so uh, uh, we expect to have. Uh, we are in the pro- in the process of wrapping up the final uh, final manuscript uh, for submission, and after that, you know, it's just implementing the uh, database and expanding it. Um, the expansion of the database is something that will happen continuously. It's not something that we can. Uh, oh, you know, I just collected one thousand samples and we are all set. Uh, that's a good start. But actually, in order to make these kind of processes uh, continuously uh, relevant, is something that has to be kept uh, updated. It's fascinating stuff. Maria, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me.
That is Maria Corradini, who's a co-author of this study looking into this, and the Associate Professor of Food Science and the Arel Chair in Food Quality at the University of Guelph. So they're approaching this from a food safety issue. But I can imagine that if you produce a food item, like a regional food item, like Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese, for instance, or maple syrup, you want to be able to tell people this is definitely from this farm, this region, and that's why you're paying this amount of dollars for it without it being adulterated or changed somehow, which apparently is a huge problem when it comes to the maple syrup industry. Here's the other thing. Did you know the Canadian maple syrup industry accounts for approximately 75% of the maple syrup production in the entire world? Yes, we produce 75% of the world's maple syrup. 89% of that comes from Quebec, 7% from New Brunswick, 4% from Ontario, and a little bit less than 1% coming from Nova Scotia. Second largest producer of maple syrup in the world right behind us is the United States. They account for approximately 24% of global production, and they get about half of it from Vermont, some from New York State, some from Maine. Uh, but essentially, Canada is a giant when it comes to producing maple syrup. So you can understand, just like, as Maria pointed out, in Italy, they want to protect their olive oil, they want to protect their cheese, that we want to make sure that when we're selling maple syrup, it is exactly what we are telling people it is and what they are paying a premium for. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Mornings with Simi. Are we on the cusp of changing how we deal with obesity? Because by now you've heard about these new class of drugs like Ozempic or Wagovi. And more and more they are being used not just for the diabetes issues that they were intended for, but also they're also being used to deal with obesity because that is a side effect of these drugs. Now, the obesity drug industry is expected to reach about $50 billion a year by 2020. 30. And now one of these drugs has also been approved. Uh, it's been approved for type 2 diabetes in Canada and the US, but here's the thing. It's also expected to soon receive approval for weight loss in the United States. Now that is a new step forward. Now this drug is different. It's called Monjaro. It has not yet been submitted for Canadian regulatory approval for weight management. But as I said, they are being used by some people for exactly that. So what kind of a difference are these drugs making in terms of treating obesity? Is it changing how we look at this, how we even look at weight gain? Well, Dr. Nadia Khan is with us now, a professor of medicine at UBC, an internal medicine specialist at St. Paul's Hospital, and a practitioner of obesity medicine at Revolution Medical Clinic. Dr. Khan, thanks for being with us. 
Thank you. Good morning. Dr. Connor, are we seeing a real change in how we look at and treat obesity? Yes, I think we're at the beginning of a new era for treatment of obesity. You know, we've always thought of obesity by society and media um, and, and culture that it's really based on a person's individual level of willpower. And it's a culmination of many wrong choices on a daily basis. And that's why people have obesity. Um, and people have also considered that is it the environment that we're in? Is it the obesogenic environment where food is very, very tasty, um, high, high calorie foods are available 24-7 now, and our environments don't require us to move around very much. But in fact, these issues are probably a much more minor role. And I think that's the most important thing. In fact, obesity is not really due to issues of willpower and poor decision making, but more along the lines of a biology. And we see that height is very genetically controlled. Well, in fact, weight is also genetically controlled. And it actually works through the brain. And that's where all of these new medications are targeting. And, you know, we've seen that people have really struggled with weight loss through diet and exercise alone and really not been able to keep weight off. And I think that's been the biggest challenge for Canadians and people around the world. Um, But these medications are actually making it so that that when people enact uh, dietary changes, it's it's much easier and the weight loss is much longer lasting. Right. The thing is, these medicines aren't necessarily approved for weight loss, but what kind of a difference are you seeing in some of your patients? Mm-hmm. Well, we're seeing fairly, in some patients, uh, fairly dramatic weight loss. And yet in others, um, we're not really seeing much of an impact. So I think it's it's important for people to realize these aren't just miracle drugs that will work in everyone. Uh, but in fact, the majority of people were seeing weight loss. And this, for example, in Ozempic or semaglutide, um, we see about a 13% weight loss in total. And about 50% of people experience a more than 15% total body weight loss. Um, that new medication that you mentioned, Monjuro or Terzepatide, that one, um, average weight loss is 17%. And even about just over a third of people experience a 25% total body weight loss in research studies. And these are people that don't have diabetes, but just have obesity, or they have an overweight uh, with complications of obesity. Right. And so those numbers are very getting approaching bariatric surgery numbers. So it's quite encouraging. Right. But the, I guess the trick here, though, is, and because we keep hearing about this, Dr. Khan, too, is that that's not what these drugs are approved for. So how can we mm-hmm. kind of widespread encourage use of them? Or how do you do that if that's not technically what they're for? I, I think that the important part is that these medications should be used based on the Health Canada indication. Um, like when terzepatide comes out, it'll be approved for um, it'll be approved for diabetes and then hopefully soon after for obesity. And I think that that's, those indications are going to be really where the research lies and where the public should be and patients should be using these medications. Right. Okay. So you've seen this, the difference then that it can make in people. What mm-hmm. does it do for those people to understand what is going on kind of with their relationship with food? Yeah. And so uh, the interesting thing is that this, these medications um, there, there's a hormone that's being produced or there's several hormones being produced in our intestine and those go to the brain and these specific areas of the brain um, 
signal fullness or, or, or hunger. And so these medications increase your sense of fullness. So patients feel much more full. So it's easier for them to stop eating or not even start eating. Um, and so they're able to reduce their portion sizes, for example. Um, and the interesting thing about this newer agent, it also works on our white adipose tissue, which is really an interesting development since Ozempic. Um, and this medication makes it so that our fat tissues are much more efficient, which reduces inflammation. And inflammation is, is really the driving force behind many of the problems with obesity, like um, diabetes, right. high blood pressure, cancer, all of those things. So that's really an exciting improvement potentially in metabolic health with these medications. That's so fascinating. Dr. Khan, thanks for your time on that this morning. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. That's Dr. Nadia Khan, professor of medicine at UBC, also practitioner of obesity medicine at Revolution Medical Clinic, talking about these new classes of drugs that could, actually already starting to revolutionize the way we look at obesity. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there are some jobs out there that I wonder how people get them. And how people are so lucky to have them. Well, this next segment is about one of those and how art restoration is so important in the future. We're going to find out why. Alicia Cooch joins us now, the founder and head conservator at the Toronto Art Restoration. Uh, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. First of all, how does one become an art restorer? Um, Well, the most traditional route is to go to school, of course. Um, Usually it starts with you need to have an undergraduate, and most uh, students in Canada come in with either um, some type of history degree or um, a science degree or fine art degree. And then from there, you can go on into two streams. You can either go to do your master's in art conservation or heritage conservation, or you could take a a diploma program, which um, is usually about... Uh, a year or two. The master's in Canada is also two years. Right. It's, it sounds like, though, there's a lot of demand for this. Um, I would say in Canada, I mean, Canada is never going to compare to, let's say, countries in Europe where they have a much, much older history. Um, but I did my education actually in Italy. I did a diploma program there. And then I tried to work in Italy for a bit and there was too much competition. So although there, you know, there was a lot more to work on, there were a lot more jobs, there was a ton of competition. Where in Canada, um, we are still a very young country in terms of, you know, collection of its cultural heritage. And, um, you know, there's, there's not as many people who have gone into the field. Right. We only have one master's program in all of Canada. Wow. Right? So everybody goes to Queen's University to get that education. Right. So tell me about the kind of work that you do. What kind of artwork do you restore? So I work in private practice. So we do work for museums, but I'm not working in a museum. Um, We have a studio and we have either museums, government collections or private collections that um, give us their artwork when either it needs preservation or more invasive restoration. So that's going to be on any kind of 
uh, fine arts or cultural objects such as sculptures or paintings, um, murals, works on paper. And it'll be everything from, you know, documenting the piece and observing the piece to, uh, you know, see if there's any damage and to kind of give it a monitor it as it as it ages to make sure it's still in a stable state or more invasive treatments, which are going to involve, you know, let's say uh, there's some parts of the painting that are missing or torn. We'll be able to stabilize those and inpaint them so that, you know, it brings the piece back to a cohesive and uh, stable state. Right. I just feel like your line of work, there must be so much stress involved in this too, because like one, one little mistake, Alicia, I feel like it, you, it, could, be, it could be ruined, right? <laughs> um, I, I will not, I will not lie to anyone and say that it is not a stressful uh, profession. It is, it does come with quite, you know, the, the stakes are high. You have to be very concentrated and take the work very seriously. Um, most conservators in their first, I would say, one or two years, especially, <laughs> excuse me, especially if they're working in private practice, do have, we call it the sleepless nights, where you stay up all night just thinking, did I make the right decision? Was that, <laughs> right. was that okay? Was I, you know, the highest standard I could have possibly given it? So I, I would say most conservators have this in their first two, three years. Some of them quit after that point because it's just too stressful, right? Wow. Um, okay. So I don't think a lot I, of people would consider art restoration to be a very stressful line of work. Well, people, you know, the, the works, the art works that we're working on, they mean so much to our clients, right? So um, we use, I mean, as much science as we possibly can to eliminate as much error as we can, but we're still just humans, right? So um, so it does come with a certain amount of stress. What I found worked, and, and I, I, you know, if I didn't start working with the team um, after about two years, I think that I probably would have uh, given up conservation by now. It really, really helped a lot to start to take on, I, I moved my practice from just me working to now we have seven people working. So it's, it's a hard rule in my company that there are no secrets. There is no stress that anyone is going to internalize and overthink. We all have to, if there's something that we're worried about or we you know, don't know what decision to make, that's absolutely understandable. We talk about it together. Right. We try to figure out as a group what is the best decision to make. And that has taken off, I would say, uh, almost 100% of the stress to make the decisions right. together. Alicia, how yeah. important is this? Do you think in the future, your type of job, how important is it? I would say very, very important. <laughs> I mean, we go, everyone goes amongst their days and they, along their days and they, um, you know, we get busy with everything that's going on and technology and new development and new style and it, it, it has a tendency to take over. So it's really important at every stage to realize within our environment and within our culture, what is significant? Um, and we can't just let, you know, 
the Walmarts of the world tell us what is significant. We have to, in ourselves, look at, you know, what is significant around us, these tangible uh, visual indicators around us, and say what is worth saving and keeping on into the future. And if we want to save it, well, we have to take steps to do that, right? Are we doing that, do you feel like? Like, is there an appreciation for, you know, making sure we have these works of art, that we restore them? Yes. In Canada, we are, and I would say in the last 15 years, we have been taking even more care of our cultural heritage. And not just, it's not just about taking care of the old things. You know, that's obviously important. We want to take care of our history. But it's also... Uh, making some very sound decisions about what is important to us. So definitely in the last 15 years, I would say including all cultures within Canada, our entire BIPOC community, who are the people in Canada and what do we want to cherish um, from a multicultural spectrum has become much more important in Canada in the last 15 years, and we have been making huge progress in that field. Right, but there's still a ways to go. So people like you, if if people want to go into art restoration, would you say, hey, this is pretty good in the future. We're going to need people to do this work. Yes, definitely. Oh, we need... Canada does not have uh, enough people working in cultural heritage right now. It's definitely a field that uh, we need more people in. All right. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Mornings with Simi. There's been a lot of discussion about Simon Fraser University's recent decision to abruptly cancel their varsity football program. We've talked about it a lot here on the show. And here's the thing. What bothers me about this and what should bother you is the impact on student athletes. We're talking about young people here who worked years so hard in high school to make it at that post-secondary level in football, who chose this particular school because of how significant SFU's football program has been. Probably a lot of them had other choices, but they chose to go there. And we know there's a lot of work that is going on to try and stop this decision, but we want to hear about the impact this is having. And I will say, again, we still haven't adequately heard from the university on this. I mean, we've asked, but so far, nothing. So what is being done to help the people who are impacted the most, those student athletes who worked so hard to get there? Well, joining us now is Massimo Ryan, who's now a former SFU football player, and Sandra Krima, who is Massimo's mother. They're both with us this morning. Thank you to both of you for being here. Hey, thanks for having us on. Thank you. And actually, Massimo's in his first year. 
First year. Okay. So Massimo, you chose SFU. Why is that? Yeah, I did. Um, I feel like the, one of the main reasons that I chose SFU is, uh, number one, it's right in my backyard. It's only about a 15-minute 15, 15 drive. Um, and I'd say the second reason is I went to high school with a lot of a lot of players that went on to SFU and had great careers, um, such as Ante Litre. He's a CFL player now. Um, I just feel like I know a lot of the people that have been through there, and I know they've always had a really strong football program, and I was really excited to be a part of that. So this had been your first year. When did you find out that this was coming to an end? I found out that this was coming to the end uh, at the exact same time that everybody else found out. I actually uh, looked on Twitter and Instagram, and it was it was like clockwork. Right when we heard, 30 seconds later, there was an Instagram and Twitter post about it as if they wanted to like uh, beat us to the punch. So, um, yeah, it was it was the exact same day as everybody else. What? See, no special meeting for the players, for the people who were in the program? No, there there was, and uh, and we had our players and our coaches there. But uh, yeah, like I said, they beat us to the punch when it comes to social media. They it was basically the same time. Wow, Massimo, how did you feel? We were all pretty shocked. Um, we knew this meeting was happening, but none of us really imagined that our season was going to be cut short. Um, at the very most, we were worried that we had one more year and then they were going to cut it. But uh, but definitely not cutting it a year short. Everybody, everybody in the room, you could kind of feel the, the silence was, was deafening. Sandra, how did you feel when you heard about this? I mean, you've watched Massimo work so hard, right, to get to this point. Well, Massimo had to write an exam that morning. And so the night before, there were rumblings of some major announcement that was coming. And I told him, don't worry, just concentrate on your on your exam and then, you know, just head over to the meeting and take it from there. Well, he gave me a call within minutes of that and receiving the news, our heads were just spinning. I mean, the kids were so devastated. Everybody was just in shock and disbelief. And then as a mother, all of a sudden... Now your your head's going to all these other places. Like, okay, well now what? We still have to get through exams. Like, these these kids, you know, they they come to they they need to play and they need, you know, so many things all at the same time. It was just like just so many mixed emotions. Yeah. But I, I think. The, oh, sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. But I think uh, the hardest part as a mom was, you know, we prepared it up to this point, and you're thinking, okay, they're going to at least have this last season. And you're scrambling, trying to give your your child some comfort and support. And, you know, without anybody giving you any solid answers as to why, there was no discussion uh, prior to this. You know, why not, you know, give the alumni and management the opportunity to discuss all the options uh, prior to actually making such a final and drastic decision. That's very true. And Massimo, since this has happened then, so it's been a week now, what kind of support have you received? Like, obviously, you have to think about where you're going to play, where you're going to go to school. So what has the school done for you? Um, so basically, after the meeting, we had this little handout that gave us some resources for, for mental health. Um, personally, that that does not help me whatsoever. Um, and and uh We've we've been getting a couple emails, but honestly, the only people that have been helping me are former SFU players that um, they they got together and and got a hold of some uh, 
some people in SFU and they're, they're helping us get accommodations from teachers and, and things like that. But when it comes to any actual administration teachers or, or resources that the, the meeting gave to us, um, I haven't used any of that and uh, there's not much I could use. Really? So they haven't reached out to say, we're going to help you with this process. Nobody reached out to you from the school to say, we're, we're here to help you. Uh, no, uh, if anything, it was a couple of words of here, we we, we want to support you guys. And then we have with uh, individual meetings that are scheduled for weeks upon weeks in the future. Uh, but we need we need to know what we're doing now. We don't have time to wait for another month to figure out what what what's going to happen. So Massimo, what is going to happen? Have you made a decision about your career? Personally, um, I want to I want to stick with what's going on. Um, I've seen the alumni and students and football players. They're they're really sticking together, and it showed me that we have a lot more of a community than I knew at first. So I, I want to see where this is going, um, and then I'll make my decision from there. Have you had offers? Are other universities offering to help you out here? I've had uh, a number of universities and junior junior football teams reach out to me so far, yeah. And do you think that would have happened unless you had all this publicity kind of about the situation? Um, I doubt it. I'd say, I'd say maybe cut the numbers in half if it didn't have all the publicity, yeah. Wow. Okay. So Massimo, what is your message to people here about this? You know, I'm sure some people might wonder, well, it's a football program. Why should they care? I assume you worked so hard to get here and this is such a life-changing opportunity for you. What do you want people to know? Um, Well, to someone who would say that, I'd say uh, we've had a lot of players come through this program, make it to the CFL. We have one signed on an NFL team right now. Um, I would also say it, it helps a lot of students with uh, funding their actual education through scholarship money. Um, and I would also say, like I said before, it, it, it brings a community game. At, at the end of every season, we have a game with the other British Columbia University, UBC, and we have a game together. Last year, it, the, the stadium was packed. Um, I think uh, people should should really take account into how this should be about the players and it is about the players. Um, but a lot of the focus is on administration right now. I think that, I think that at the end of the day, it's the kids who decided to come here um, that, that should be receiving the most support right now. Well, we will do all that we can. Listen, let us know how it goes, Massimo, and best of luck, okay? Thank you very much. And Massimo Sandra, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Massimo Ryan, uh, SFU, well, now former Simon Fraser University varsity football player in his first year, no less, and his mom, Sandra Crema, who joined us to talk about the decision by SFU to cancel the program. They found out when everybody else found out, right? Same announcement that everybody else got is the announcement that they got, that same moment. No leading up to this. No, we're going to help you. And this, nobody from the school has reached out to help them with the process. I mean, a handout just doesn't cut it, right? We'll continue to follow this story continue to ask for someone from the university to talk to us about this and explain what the heck is going on if you want to weigh in simi at cknw.com this is mornings with simi 
There isn't enough housing available or even shelter beds to accommodate the number of people who are sleeping rough in our city. So we're hearing from folks that they weren't offered housing or shelter spaces. And incidentally, talking with my peers in the sector, a lot of housing agencies weren't even asked if they had available shelter spots in advance of this decampment. All right. So that is Steve Johnson. Steve is the executive director of the Community Impact Real Estate Society. And as we've been hearing in the news this morning, there are still people camping down along Hastings Street. Every morning since the decampment process started, uh, there has been an effort to clean things up. And every morning, there are tents there again. So it obviously begs the question, is there some place for people to go? If there isn't, is that why they're coming back? And let's talk about the process of how this all unfolded and what's going on. So joining us now to give us an update on the situation is Ken Sim, the mayor of Vancouver. Mayor Sim, thank you for being here this morning. Hey, Simi. Thank you very much for having me. So do we know what the situation is like down there right now? Yeah, well, I, I haven't been there uh, this morning, but I've been there every single day since um, we, we initiated the um, re- the removal of the, the encampment. And um, yeah, it, it, it uh, we've cleared quite a few structures actually uh, on any given day. So before um, uh, April fifth, there are about eighty structures remaining on the on the road, and we've gotten it down um, to let's say about ten to fifteen that pop up every single day, and. Uh, our crews are out um, helping um, people um, uh, remove those uh, structures as they uh, creep up. So will that be a daily occurrence? Is that going to continue? That is going to continue. Um, we are enforcing uh, the, the fire bylaw um, because it's a pretty dangerous, untenable situation where we had tents that would catch on fire uh, with, you know, um, explosive projectiles, lithium batteries, propane tanks, which put a risk, uh, you know, uh, not just the people living in the tents and the first responders that were responding to the fires, but the buildings um, that they would lean against um, that would put even more lives and housing stock at risk as well. Are you concerned, though, that it appears that there's just there's nowhere for some of the people to go? Um, that, you know, obviously that's always a concern. But what I can tell you is leading up to this um, event um, for eight months, we were helping uh, people in a very compassionate and empathetic way uh, find housing um, options. And during that process, we did remove approximately 600 structures. And then the day of, um, on April uh, 5th, there were 80 structures. And all those individuals that were there had been offering housing options for months in advance of this, um, uh, of April 5th. And um, everyone uh, on April 5th uh, who um, requested housing got it. So, um, you know, for the people that want it, there were housing um, options available for them. Right. Why do we keep hearing, though, that the shelters are full, that there's no place for people to go? Well, it, depending on which shelter, yeah, there are shelters that are at capacity. But when you look at um, the, the region um, holistically, um, and we've been working on it quite a bit, um, there are there is capacity at um, uh, different shelters, and there's uh, there there has been enough rooms for the people that want them. So, are you saying they needed to perhaps leave the neighborhood? Like, where are some of these shelters, or do you mean outside of the city? No, uh, within the city. Um, I don't know the exact locations because there are quite a few uh, shelters and it's pretty fluid. It changes by the hour. But I can tell you um, we did have capacity overall in the city uh, to provide um, shelter options for people who wanted it. And people took us up on the offer and um, every person that asked uh, uh, for housing did get it. 
So are you saying then the people who are still out there are there because they don't want to take some of the shelter spaces that have been offered? Yeah. So, you know, I, and I, I do want to put a very empathetic and compassionate lens on this. There, We do have a lot of challenges. Um, you know, there are people that uh, um, definitely need help. There could be a mental health um, or, um, you know, um, uh, other issues uh, that we do need to address. But every single person who wanted the housing did get it. And I also do want to stress that out of the 80 tents that were remaining on site, there were a don't get me wrong, there were people that did need help, um, uh, legitimately needed help. And then there were other uh, actors as well um, who actually weren't living in the tents. And, you know, there there was, uh, you know, people that were using those tents as, you know, uh, chop shops or uh, places to store, you know, um, you know, weapons and what have you. And that accounted for about a third of the tents in question there. So, um like I said, uh, this thing, um, you know, we've been working on this for eight months and we've been um, offering housing solutions to everyone who um, has wanted it. And the vast majority of people uh, took us up on the offer before April the 5th. And then on April 5th, uh, anyone who wanted one uh, definitely got one. Could this have been done better, do you think, given what seems like to be the confusion about what's available, what's not available? Like, could the city have done this in a, in a better fashion? Well, you know, I think whenever we do anything, uh, we can always do it better. And, you know, that's, you know, process of continuous improvement. But I'm I'm incredibly uh, proud of, you know, despite the very challenging situation um, that our team faced, be it, you know, our engineers or the Vancouver, uh, the VPD or Vancouver Fire and Rescue or all our support services. um, This was an eight month process. And so we took a very empathetic lens um, and a compassionate lens um, when we were dealing with these challenges. And so um, people look at April the 5th, but really what people should do is look at the eight-month lead up to this and, you know, all the different approaches that we took leading up to it. Um, And at the end of the day, we did have to make a call on the 5th. And, you know, because at the end of the day, we, a lot of, um, there was a very big public safety uh, component to this. Um, You know, when when you look at the fires, like, you know, on the very somber anniversary, one year anniversary of the Winters Hotel fire, you know, these are the the things that were, you know, that we have to consider, like, um, you know, if a tent does uh, um, go on fire and it puts, uh, you know, it starts a fire in an existing building. Best case scenario is we're able to put out the fire in the building. Second base, uh, best case scenario is everyone, you know, gets out um, incredibly uh, Safe, uh, safely, but, you know, we can, you know, based on our experience, the, the outcomes could be quite horrific if we don't deal with these um, very, very challenging situations. And so that's what we had to do. What about the other encampments then? Is there concern at all from your perspective that perhaps the one at Crab Park is going to get bigger or they're going to pop up somewhere else? Yeah, I, I think we, so yeah, that's always a concern. And so I, I do want to make a distinction here. They, what we were trying to achieve on um, East Hastings was we're enforcing a fire, um, a fire bylaw, um, you know, a fire order, because the situation was getting incredibly dangerous. And, you know, the risk to the buildings um, in the surrounding areas um, was untenable. 
and so we were enforcing a fire bylaw. We're not trying to, as terrible as this sounds, we're not trying to resolve homelessness. Um, that's a way bigger issue, and it didn't happen overnight, and we're not going to solve that overnight. What we had to do is make sure that, you know, um, the safety of the residents in the tents on the downtown east side, plus the surrounding buildings, uh, we mitigated that risk um, you know, um, to avoid a really horrific situation. Right. What do you say then to the people who say, well, okay, we're not trying to solve solve homelessness, but we're not really going to fix this problem until we can fix homelessness? Well, this, this is the first step. You know, and so we're, you know, we have a multi-pronged approach and, you know, uh, we've been working with the province um, and they've been great partners in providing more housing solutions. In fact, um, you know, when we're first approached quite a few months ago, um, we approved 90 new units within a couple hours on Main and Terminal and, um, and on, on Ash Street. And I drove by, you know, I drive by every single day and those units are coming up and we will continue to do everything we can do to provide more housing um, faster and being great partners to the province. Um, so the, there are a lot of things that are working concurrently uh, to help us address the, uh, our challenges in a meaningful way and in a, in, a, in a compassionate way. But these things aren't going to be solved overnight. And, you know, it, it's not as if these things are going to look like, you know, um, you know, everything's going to be wrapped up in a really nice, pretty bow. Uh, we're trying um, as uh, we're going to be working as hard as we can to address these issues, but they will take time and they're not going to necessarily look optimal every single, every single time we address them. Mayor Sim, thank you for your time this morning. Great. Thank you very much for your time. That's Ken Sim, Mayor of Vancouver, talking about obviously the ongoing issues along the Hastings Street decampment process there. Tents keep popping up every morning uh, and they're going to keep showing up. City workers are to clear them away every morning. That is now going to be the kind of policy moving forward, as you heard him say there. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.